my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at River.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Cosmic Bitcoin every single Wednesday, three o'clock or Pacific, five o'clock Central, six o'clock Eastern. We go live with the biggest thinkers in Bitcoin. Y'all know that I am extremely bullish on a cosmic level, and we try to find people with different perspectives, different ways of thinking about the massive impact that Bitcoin is going to have on the world and society. I personally have been, you know, immediately impressed by Luke. He hasn't even written an article yet, but just his Twitter threads are very insightful and very analytically kind of like making a strong case for why Bitcoin is extremely, extremely bullish. So excited to chat with him. But all of these conversations are recorded natively here on Twitter. And uh, they're also recorded and posted to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast feed. So you can catch it all there as well. But yeah, I mean, that's what we're here to do. Get cosmic about Bitcoin. This is all brought to you by the Bitcoin conference, of course. I just uh, spoke with Luke before this call and I'm making sure that Luke is going to be there. So you can meet Luke there in person, but you can meet pretty much all of Bitcoin Twitter as we get together and enjoy being Cosmic being Bitcoiners and pushing this movement forward. So go to the Bitcoin conference, b.tc forward slash conference. It's this May 18th through the 20th. And yeah, with that, I'll hand it to you for a quick intro and then we can jump into this conversation. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah. So Luke is a Bitcoiner and he's really focused on education, technological advancement. And what I've seen is he's under trying to understand the transition from fiat to Bitcoin through the lens of previous historical and technological epochs. It's been really insightful stuff. And I think it's interesting that Luke has a professional background in real estate as well. And so I think we're going to get into that a little bit. But yeah, one of the, the main takeaways on 
kind of Luke's overarching work is that you can never be late to Bitcoin. So I assume that means we're either early or on time. So I'm, I suppose we'll get into that. But yeah, Luke, would I just be really curious if you could give people a bit more color around, you know, what led you to Bitcoin and what was your life like before you really dove down the rabbit hole, so to speak? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I've gotten so many questions personally, but like, you know, how are you, you know, thinking about this or whatever, which, which all that's pretty new, you know, I was telling CK earlier today when we, we were calling about how pretty much all of 2022 and late 2021, I was trying to orange pill folks in real life, you know, giving them presentations, I, I had in person presentations, Zoom calls, you know, and, you know, no one ever asked that question of how'd you get into it, whatever. It was just basically me like begging people to like, pay attention for more than 10 minutes in the most respectful way I could. <laughs> so yeah, who was I before versus now? I mean, I, I think I'm the same human I, I was before, but I, I can definitely feel that my understanding of the world has changed quite a bit. I have loved, well, I love many things. I love history. I love physics. I love filmmaking and storytelling and art. And when I was younger, middle school and high school, these were all, especially then, passions of mine. And in, in thinking about history and technology, all that especially was really fascinating me in high school because I could see more and more technology change in my life. When I was young in elementary school, I did not have access to the internet. My parents had, you know, very, very basic email, but we were, you know, but we were well behind <laughs> what most of my peers had as far as the internet goes. You know, I didn't have a cell phone until I was much older <laughs> than my peers. But anyway, as I began realizing how quickly technology was changing, at the same time the iPhone first came out. And of course, the first few years after the iPhone, it just, that really solidified it in my mind, even even though I was young then, to like, wow, the world's different. Granted, I really understand how or why or whatever, but anyway, over the course of the years, I continued to think about it, and in 2016, 2017 or so, I began learning about finance and real estate and investing and everything of that sort, and I found it really interesting, and I quickly learned that, oh, okay, real estate's a good investment because the cash that we denominate that real estate then goes down, and oh, okay, the mortgages and the fixed rate debt you can take out against real estate is pretty much guaranteed to go down in value against the real estate on a long time horizon because pretty much the United States government, along with every central bank in the world, more or less has their foot on one end of the scale that benefits it towards landlords. And it, that was an uncomfortable realization to realize. It's like, wow, you know, when I really started learning about the Federal Reserve and everything in 2018, 2019, you know, that was really alarming to me. It's like, wow, this is, this is not good. This is really bad. But that's pretty much where that ended. And then from there, 2019 or so, I I had a, a couple of friends, two or three in particular, acquaintances and friends that I knew were high net worth and I knew had a large allocation of Bitcoin. And for whatever reason, I, I put this in my recent podcast with Jack, but you know, looking back, I don't know how I f figured it out. I don't know how I discovered Bitcoin. I don't know how I have come to understand it or articulate it and frankly be in even in the space all the way up today it's like it 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 feels completely out of my control yet here i am but for whatever reason my obsession with learning about technology my obsession with learning about finance and my i guess age was of a certain benefit and that i didn't my brain was not a adapted to the fiat mindset for decades and decades and so i, I think by some combination in late 2019 i began learning about it and by Oh, probably early 2021, I finally understood like, okay, this, this is not a Ponzi. This is not a bubble. This is not going to die. And then by mid to late 2022, no, probably mid 2022 or so, I finally understood coin only.
at first my, you know, like most people, I actually tweeted on this earlier today, but like most people, I thought, okay, Bitcoin's really cool. It's a really big deal and altcoins have a future and that they will be like either new to Bitcoin or there'll be like a multi-chain world. And, you know, so I, I, I really believe that. And, you know, I, I thought I was smart, especially in the last bull run when you had clearly obvious Ponzi schemes and scams in the altcoin space. And, you know, eventually, like pretty much everyone here already in this space, we've all come to realize that that's not the way that money works. That's not the way that value works. The, the utility itself is the immutability. It is, you know, Metcalf's law, money trends to one and Gresham's law and everything. So, so anyway, mid, uh, mid 22 or so, I became Bitcoin only. And I, that's, and, and the, the funny thing is that in becoming Bitcoin only, it actually makes you become more bullish. So if you asked, what do I feel like looking at my previous self? I was bullish on Bitcoin then, but I'm even more bullish now, you know, because it's like, there's not going to be multiple, there's just going to be one. There's not multiple black holes, there's just one, you know? And so anyway, it, it's coming for everything. And so anyway, that, that really helped emphasize that. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how I am today. So speaking of being bullish, you're one of the very few people that I feel like thinks of Bitcoin in a similar way that I do, which is extreme bullishness. You know, I've been pushing 37 sats equals generational wealth just to try to be provocative. But how did how did you like start seeing Bitcoin in this kind of like black hole, all or nothing type of a dynamic? Because frankly, like that's not like I wouldn't say that that's common even amongst Bitcoin enthusiasts. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If if we were to put the whole world in a series of spheres that becomes smaller and smaller within each other, there's the whole world of adults, you know, 5.3 billion adults in the world today, probably 6 billion adults in a decade or two. And then within that circle, you have the people that use fiat currency, which is like 90, 95% of everyone. And then within that circle, you have the people that understand there's a problem. Within that, you have the people that understand the Fed is a problem. And then with that, you understand it's not just the Fed, it's inherent corruption. It's It's not the Fed itself that's a problem. It's it's the corruption of the ledger that's a problem, which is even more specific. And then then you get to the gold bugs, and then which are really you know finite fixed money bugs. And then you, within them you get the bitcoiners, and then within them you get the bullish bitcoiners, and then within them you get the bitcoiners that think Bitcoin's going to ten million, and then within there you get people like you and me, CK, that are more hyper bullish. So <laughs> so anyway, yes, it's very rare. And frankly, that's part of the reason why being on these shows is more or less like crack cocaine, because it's like, oh, my goodness, I'm not the only one. <laughs> and they they all want to exchange ideas. So anyway, yes, it, it's very rare. But how I got there, as you asked, really, you know, where's Greg Foster? You need him. I, I just did the math, you know, so shout out to Greg. Thank you, Greg. But I just did the math. And that was my second thread, which thus far has been the most viral one I've had, where what I did was I took the current remaining supply of bitcoin and i took the current global distribution of wealth roughly and i then thirdly i took the chart that validates halfening's prediction back in 2009 you know i think a lot of us here know this but nonetheless i'll say it for those that don't but halfening in january of 2009 predicted that bitcoin has a chance of basically consuming all the monetizable value of the world you know he had a blog post you could look it up it's so, oh, I don't know, maybe a page or so, but that's more or less what he predicted. Granted, he used different terminology than I do and all that, but, you know, he said, okay, $100, $200 trillion or whatever, divide by the Bitcoins and blah, blah, blah. That's what he predicted. And pretty much over the last 14 years, I would argue, 
that he's been completely validated. Bitcoin has done that. He had no price history to base his prediction on. He purely did it based on first principles. And I think that's part of what gives it credence and strength. You know, Bitcoin did not trade over one U.S. dollar for two whole years after he made that prediction. So it's not, you know, someone like me, I have the benefit where I can look at 14 years of price history, whereas Hal Finney's prediction didn't have that. So that's one of the reasons why I think his prediction is especially insightful. He was doing it from a place of logic and not of price speculation or, or whatever. But anyway, all I say is that I took those three things. I said, okay, Hal Finney's prediction has been coming true for the last 14 years. That's, the, that's what the trend, the chart clearly shows. Okay, number one. Number two, we can have you know relatively accurate data on what global distribution of wealth is. And number three, we know verifiably how many Bitcoins there are. And so in my thread, what I did is, okay, what if we combine these three things? And, you know, CK, as, as you know, the math is just absurd. You know, it, it, it's, it's completely mind-boggling. And I think that's one of the reasons why I went so viral is because it's not just moon math. It's taking current estimations of current trends and extrapolating them to what could this eventually look like at some unknown date. And that's one, of the, that's one of the things I try to do. There are a lot of hyperbolish people in coin, and I really try to steer away from giving exact dates. That's, I mean, now I, I think that's something intentional I'm doing. But at first, I didn't do that purely because I know that it's probably going to age really poorly. <laughs> so I have no idea how quickly things happen. But, you know, just doing the math, you know, if you have 5.36 billion adults, you have, you know, say 100 million companies with decently large balance sheets, you have 10,000 large corporations in the world, you have 200 nation states, and, you know, what, 3,000 billionaires? I mean, you know, you do the math, you do distribution between the 2 million Bitcoins left and then another theoretical 2 million Bitcoins over the next 117 years that are going to be put onto the market. I mean, if you divide... 5 billion of anything by 4 million and the you know the underlying amount becomes absurd so that the long answer is short your question of how did i become this bullish it's it's not because i'm trying to reach here it's just i looked at the charts and i did the math and i really think i'm going to be wrong maybe by multiple orders of magnitude you know in my thread i talked about how you know a million what a million sats could buy you or what 100,000 sats could buy you and, and as i clarify in the thread i could very easily be off by a factor of 50 100, maybe more even. But it's the math is so absurd that even if I'm off, even if I'm too bullish by a factor of 100, the math is so absurd, it's worthy of, of justification. And I, I'm afraid that's what most people don't realize yet. They think, oh, it's so absurd, that couldn't possibly happen. Well, it's like, okay, what if something that is 100 x less absurd in your in your view happens and there's a one percent chance of it happening it's like i think that's more than enough to justify an allocation and, and that's kind of the view i'm really hoping to bring here is that you don't have to believe bitcoin has a hundred percent chance of success to understand it's a huge threat to your old worldview and an opportunity to be part of the new paradigm but obviously i think there's more than a one percent chance <laughs> chris so you have your hand raised feel free to jump in yeah, no, Luke, I think that was a, a great rant and even kind of tying that into something else that uh, Newt Van Holm was saying. So probably in October or November of last year, he was on Simply Bitcoin and he was saying he ran the numbers based on just like bills that had passed in the United States for basically printing money or, you know, sending money for relief for X, Y, and Z cause. And basically he said, you know, at the current time of 2022, we were September, October, he's like, they've printed about $10 million per Bitcoin mined. So he was taking, obviously we're getting 6.25 Bitcoin reward 
per block that's found. And he's like, yeah, if you're, you're adding up all the U.S. spending bills, they basically printed, you know, about $10 million for Bitcoin. Obviously, that doesn't all flow into Bitcoin. That's why Bitcoin's not at that price. Real estate, stocks, bonds, other assets and such. But he's like, yeah, if you think Bitcoin back then, probably right around that 20K mark, 25K mark, whatever it was. Actually, maybe this is before FTX blew up. So maybe it was a little higher, like 30K. But he's like, yeah, if you're assuming that it's only going to stay at 30K and he's like, this is only getting exponentially faster in the amount of money they're printing with interest rates going up. And, uh, you know, basically they, they have debt loads that they have to pay that are only getting exponentially more expensive. He's like, yeah, like my bet is that Bitcoin's price is only going up from here. You know, maybe 10 million per coin is bullish. Maybe it's bearish. I guess time will be the, the decider of that. Bearish. I, I know I know CK was going to say that's bearish take still, but yeah, it's only a matter of time. The only reason I say it's bearish is because when I do the math, like I, I see, I really do see Bitcoin as binary. So it either it works and it's this black hole or it doesn't, the incentives fail and it falls apart. Like, so for me, like there's no middle ground. It's either everything or, or, or breaks. So yeah, that's why, that's the only reason I think it's bearish because he, he it pretty much say $10 million a coin, like that's Bitcoin breaking because that's not infinity divided by 21 million. Could I add something to that? Yeah, go ahead. Hello, am I there? Sorry. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, sorry, my internet cut for a second. I think. Yeah, I, I mean, kind of like CK said, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I fully agree that it's black or white. And I think that really turns people off, frankly, you know, because they think, oh, there's nuance and all that. And sure, there's nuance. But the argument itself is either all or nothing. Either either this argument of that we need eventually in the future, we need some form of immutable fixed closed monetary energy network system you know however you want to put it from a physics perspective money you know how whatever terms you want to use either that is the future that's coming or it's not i i mean or we have something else you know i mean perhaps in the future we continue on in the way that the world's been for the last 500 years and we have a series of reserve currencies and you know networks of political currency units that turn over as empires turn over and you know, probably those empires were turned over faster and faster as technology forces the rise and fall of empires to get faster and faster. But it, it really is binary. You know, that people ask me all the time about when I talk about Tesla or Ford or, you know, other engineers and mathematicians and scientists and economists, economists or whatever, the 20th century and that they predicted Bitcoin. It's like, well, they didn't predict 21 million. They didn't predict the specific numbers that Bitcoin uses. They didn't predict that Satoshi, someone named Satoshi, make it. It's it's not some religious profit prediction they made. They just simply thought about it from an engineering perspective, and they came to the conclusion that eventually we're going to find a way to do this. And so, like CK said, I would say either they're right or they're wrong. And when it comes to Bitcoin, it's exciting and also terrifying to me that it appears Bitcoin is that exact thing. And it's already the largest and most secure computer network on the planet. It has, you know, what, 99, 98, 99.9, 95, you know, whatever it is, some absurd level of hash of all digital assets out there. And with Ethereum switching from proof of work to proof of stake last year, they, you know, they were, you know, arguably already doomed. But now I think they're even more doomed that they switched to proof of stake. And Gary Gensler's actions against it now is, is, is just <laughs> horrible <laughs> if you're own Eve. But anyway, it's like with Ethereum capitulating into proof of stake, it's like, okay, now Bitcoin is all that's left. It, it is basically the black hole that has absorbed all the other potential black holes out there. And you could argue that they would never have been black holes or you could argue they would have been, but it's irrelevant. Bitcoin is already 
one. It has a 14 year head start. It's the most secure computer network on the planet. And so it's like, you know, if you think that this vision of the future world having this immutable laundry supply is true, then Bitcoin has to be the lowest risk asset on the planet. Or it's not that. And that's the wrong vision of the future or whatever. And, and Bitcoin's, you know, just going to bobble around and, you know, trade marginally above zero as there are gamblers that predict it has a future, even though it doesn't. So really, those are the only two worldviews. And if it's the latter, you know, Bitcoin will just continue to be this niche thing. I don't think that's what it's going to do just because the adoption is terrifyingly fast. But if it is the former and it is the fulfillment of that vision, I mean, 10 million is is crazy cheap. You know, I, I mean, I, I can go on, I guess. I made a recent thread about comparing monopoly money to the U.S. dollar. But I mean, you know, any price in the U.S. dollar is cheap if Bitcoin is the fulfillment of that vision. And I'm and I'm really concerned for people that don't have Bitcoin that the probability of Bitcoin being that vision and the probability of that vision being correct is upwards of 90 percent. My fellow plebs. Come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Magazine time, y'all. Bitcoin is for everyone, lefties, righties, and the rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Naib Bukele, Jeff Dice, Natalie Smolinski, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy from the local Barnes & Noble bookstore or from the Bitcoin magazine store at bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Something that caught my eyes is we were talking about this idea of Bitcoin as being a binary outcome. Either it works or it doesn't. And, you know, like you said, that can kind of turn people off to it. Looking, They're looking for the nuance or they want something a bit easier to digest. And I think something you do really well in your threads is showing previous epochs in history that may relate or illuminate, you know, what this Bitcoin transition might be like. And I, for me, it just it sat very well when you refer to fiat currency as political currency units. And, and it's almost like it's a... It's kind of like a non-derogatory but accurate way to just describe how archaic the system is. And you also talk about just previous epochs of te technological development over time and kind of showing, you know, just how far we've come in a short amount of time. You know, you say you have, you know, less in common with your grandparents than you'll have, you know, with the future you 10 years from now. And it's... It, it's or rather the inverse of that. But to me, it just it, the way you present it is so logical. And it, it makes it just makes sense. Honestly, it's like calling a spade a spade, saying that these political currency units are not going to compete with decentralized energy money. And then with that information, what do you do? Like you're not asking anyone to, you know, go all in, you're just saying, here's the facts, here's how the situation has developed, I guess. So with all that in mind, I would just be really curious to get your take on like, how you see technology developing, and then, you know, what, I guess, what the pace of that is going to be like in the future as it relates to Bitcoin. Like, we've come so far in just, 
you know, 14 years since Bitcoin launched. I'm kind of struggling to find the words here, but yeah, it just really caught my attention that this is something that's happened before this, this quickening pace of technological development. So like, yeah, how did that occur to you? And then, you know, where do you weave Bitcoin into that, this kind of transition from an arcane system that is, is frankly ridiculous, mm. as, as I think you, you say, to, to something like Bitcoin that simply makes sense. Yeah, well, first of all, appreciate the compliment. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on that term. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't think I've heard it before. I, don't, I mean, maybe someone else has said it before me. I don't recall. So if someone has, please let me know that I can credit them. But I, I'm, I don't recall right now hearing it before. But basically, I came up with a term or, or the term made sense to me, I should say, because that's what it is. It's what is a $20 bill? It's a it's a piece of paper that is saying this is a part of the ledger of this given political system. And if you're within the borders, the jurisdiction, the, the tax jurisdiction of the system, it is payable for all debts and all cash flows, you know, within within this system. And, you know, other political systems either accept that or they don't, you know, I mean, you know, take the whole Russia US troubles now with the cutoff of SWIFT. It's like, you know, it's it, it's a political game. And, you know, that's, that's, again, I, I, I hate fiat, don't get me wrong, but the reality is that this is a much better system than not having money, you know, way back in the ancient history, when we had, you know, only salt and grain, it's like, if you gave those people choosing having societies and emperors with political money, it's like, well, they'd prefer that they'd prefer money that enslaves them, and at least gives them some form of ledger versus a form of money that 99% of people don't even have access to. So, you know, I talked about this in Preston's podcast earlier today, too, about how, you know, the fiat money system is, you know, something that pretty much the Dutch, at least our modern form is something that the Dutch came up with and how, you know, the only reason it was adopted is because, you know, it works a little bit better than the, the former system, you know, instead of using food that rots <laughs> and that most people can't have access to, at least they have access to a form of currency that is good within that political jurisdiction, even though those political currency units enslave them and cause all sorts of distortions in society and have boom and bust cycles as empires come up and down. But anyway, how do I view it playing out? Well, I, I simply find history fascinating. I look at history and sure, you can think Bitcoin is going to fail, it's going to be killed or whatever. But it's like, if you look at any paradigm shift, for, you know, not, not specifically a company, but a paradigm, they, it always wins. And it always wins. It's always the underdog. It's always the new thing that destroys the, the old thing. I mean, if, if we think about the printing press, we think about the church, what, ha what was the world before the printing press? You had a series of religious institutions or political institutions that were the readers of the world. You know, people couldn't read. It was just the, it was just the priest or it was just the king or it was just the monarch or, or whoever it was. It was very rare. And what the printing press is, was was just a machine that printed letters on pieces of paper and widely distributed it. And that caused all sorts of impacts in the world. And it completely undermined the old, the old system for thousands of years before the printing press. What did people do? Well, you had a series of chiefs or emperors or, or kings or, or priests, like I said, and, and you know, the title changes and the kind of society changes. And even though it advances, it's more or less the same idea that up until this point, we have had a small select group of people that, you know, economically speaking, the incentive is for a small group of people to be the arbiters of truth or the arbiters of information. And the printing press completely obliterated that. That whole worldview for thousands of years was suddenly over. 
And, you know, the same thing with the locomotive in the same way that the printing press was the first global, um, you know, reading system, if you want to call it that, uh, with books and publishers or whatever, you could call the locomotive the first global mass transit system. Like the whole idea is completely against everything in, in the past. And so, you know, when I look at Bitcoin today, I, I, I think of it like the Internet and in that, sure, there is a non-zero chance. And I know this might offend people, but I, I have to say it. I think there's a non-zero chance that Bitcoin fails. You know, there is a possibility. We have we have to admit that we're, at, you know, it's a very small group of us. I really don't think it fails. I can't find any way that there's possibly a threat to it, but there's the unknown unknown, and there's a possibility it fails. But to be somebody that is rooting for it to fail, or hoping it fails, or excited when it fails, I, I think is a gross misunderstanding of what this is. If Bitcoin fails, we're probably going to descend into World War III. If Bitcoin fails, hundreds of millions of people are going to die that I strongly believe would not die if Bitcoin survives. You know, I mean, like Joe Burnett and I were talking about this, but it's like either Bitcoin survives and the world continues to progress and this is a good thing and the world's energy usage, productivity and consumption goes up and everything or Bitcoin fails, Bitcoin dies. And we're basically stuck in this ancient world, even though we have a growing population, growing energy demands and everything else. And basically, we're trying to sustain the future population on ancient technology, which, you know, that inefficiency inevitably is going to lead to more famine, more starvation, more conflict and more war. And now that we have nuclear warheads, that's especially concerning. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, to finish answering your question, I guess, or summarize it, like when I look at it in, in context of every historical example before, it's like, okay, either this new paradigm survives, and I think the incentive is strongly in favor of it surviving, or it fails. And if it fails, we basically undo the trend of the last three, four thousand years of exponential technology progress. And and as a result, we see untold number of people die. And so I think the only logical conclusion is that Bitcoin survives. And I think everyone's incentive should be that Bitcoin survives. So anyway, that's kind of my view of how I view it. As far as the, as far as the speed, I think it's going to be very fast. I think it's going to be much faster than people expect. Yeah, just to riff on that idea of like the inefficiencies resulting from fiat currency, something I've heard you talk about before is this idea of like, what happens to society when you monetize these commodities that have a use value, whether that be real estate or oil or food, grains, like what, what does that do to a society? Like that just seems to be at the crux of, for me, what makes Bitcoin such an attractive idea is the idea to allow those goods to come down in price so that they can be used towards productive means. Like I think when I think of this like singularity that is Bitcoin, like it's a transition to a new system. And I, and I think about like what the world could be like in the future if we move beyond this, you know, archaic mode of, you know, storing value in things that people need to live. Like, and to kind of connect that to your point is like, what does that do for life expectancy, health, well-being for society as a whole? So I would just love to hear your thoughts on like, you know, comparing the two systems, like, what is it about fiat that does create this internal conflict, this lack of cooperation and, and perhaps instability in the system? Yeah, well, I, I talked about this on Preston's show that came out earlier today. I, I really encourage people to watch it. I think of the three, it's the best one yet. I hope the next one's even better. But I think Preston did a really good job. And I had a lot of visuals and slides to, to back up this idea of, of the question and the idea you're getting at. I used a lot of slides from the, what's it called, WTF 1971, as well as a few slides of my own. And anyway, to, to answer your question and expand on that idea, 
I, I mean, I would just say that, it, you know, if you corrupt the measure, then the incentive trends away from measuring things and it trends towards accurately predicting for other people how that measuring stick is going to change. You, you know, I mean, if, if we think of this in terms of a game of Monopoly and the banker just creates more and more notes within the game of Monopoly, you know, you have less and less incentive to buy houses and collect rent and, you know, be a part of the board, so to speak, because, you know, because you're basically providing value to the metaphorical renters. And, and like I said, instead of providing quote unquote value on the board and building things, you know, if the banker becomes more and more corrupt and prints more and more money into existence. Well, your financial incentive, the direction of your gaze transitions away from the productivity of the board and towards the, to, to outside the board, to, to the creation of that money. And, and like I said, in Preston's show, that that's exactly what we've seen since the 1970s. You know, if you look back at pictures of people in the 1970s, everyone was skinny. You know, you could have, you could raise an entire family and own your own home on a single income or whatever. And, and what we have over the last 50 years is a fragmentation, I would argue, a fragmentation of society. People with, let's see, how do I put this and not offend everyone? If, if the people that are generally lower on agreeableness and lean towards more the political right, at least here in the United States, what's called the political right, what, what do they do? They tend to blame immigrants and you know ethnic minorities and politicians and everything of that sort. And people that are higher in agreeableness and, you know, have different set of personality, you know, they tend to leave towards in America, towards the political left. You know, and they tend to blame the capitalists and the, and the people trying to provide productivity on the board or whatever. And, you know, basically, not to try to offend people too much, but, you know, pretty much both sides of the aisle are more or less different faces of of the same problem you know and you could debate which side is making the problem worse you know that's fine you know that's not something i want to get a part of right now but you know basically what you have you have two political parties that are vying for control over the political currency unit system you have this big golden lever in the middle of our society and the right wants to push it towards their direction the left wants to push it towards their direction you know they all have lobbyists and constituents and you know people giving them campaign donations or whatever all these people um, that are funding the political regime, for lack of a better word, and trying to incentivize the lever being pulled in their direction. This is exactly why we see polarization now in the political sphere, you know, because, you know, if you have a bunch of different little political groups, they trend towards two. You trend towards two political groups that just go back and forth, back and forth, because they all conglomerate to give more strength to themselves and have a bigger enemy. And so anyway, that, I mean, if you want to explain American and frankly global politics the last 50 years, what you have is increasingly polarized and increasingly more condensed and increasingly more corrupt, you know, binary system where it's either blue, red, blue, red. And, you know, it, it has to alternate. Every president has to become more controversial than the last. You know, I would argue that Joe Biden is a much more controversial or unpopular president than Trump was. And Trump, again, arguably was more controversial and more controversial and unpopular than in the public's eyes than say Obama and likewise Obama with Bush. I mean, you know, I mean, think about what the presidents have done, at least here in the States, again, because I have an American bias, but, you know, Bush brought us to war and Obama drastically increased entitlements and government spending. And then Trump with COVID and all that, you know, it was a massive ballooning that he oversaw there. And now Joe Biden's kind of putting them all to shame. But <laughs> my, my point here is not to take a political side, but it's to get really to the heart of the issue, you know, that you you have to face the music you have to face the truth of the political system when we're talking about 
a political currency unit system. And so, you know, it, it has to get worse. And this is one of the things that Jeff Booth really understands is that it has, you know, it, it has to get worse as it cannibalizes itself and the lever gets bigger and bigger and the incentive to pull it to your side gets bigger and bigger and everything outside of that lever becomes increasingly worse as the economy becomes less efficient. You know, it's, it's, it's quite concerning. It's pretty much a system that's designed to destroy itself and cannibalize itself from the inside. So something that you said two questions ago was that, you know, if Bitcoin doesn't succeed, we're going to have challenges with, you know, a growing population and more need for resources kind of using ancient technology. That's a mental model that I've had for a long time, which is that we're kind of in this monetary dark ages where we're still, you know, we're fine. We're all financially illiterate and everyone is, is kind of like waiting on instructions from the high priests of fiat, AKA central bankers. How, how did you kind of like come to that conclusion? And, and why do you think people like fail to recognize the fact that, you know, we are in this monetary dark ages, if you will? Yeah, well, I, I mean, at least personally, I, I'm I'm a Christian and, and a believer, and I like to give people the, the benefit of the doubt. You know, I remember when COVID was first happening, and, and it was really easy for people, again, on all sides of the aisles, whatever, to, to come up with conspiracy theories or, or blame other people, whatever. And I, I continually, from the start, it's just, I think so much of what we attribute to malice and, and evil and, and conspiracy theory, I think just so much of it is inefficiency and, and incompetence and misguided incentives. Now, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of evil people in charge <laughs> in the world. But I think so much is just incompetence. And like you said, with the high priest of fiat currency, it's it's, it's incredibly inefficient. You know, I, what I'm about to say might offend people, but I actually think Jerome Powell is doing a really good job. I think that he's doing a good job considering he's managing a system that is pretty much, one way or another, doomed to have some sort of major major catastrophe and i think the fact that he prevented inflation from getting any worse than it was and has retained any faith in the u.s dollar you know even till today i i think is frankly just you know commendable to him now with that said <laughs> no matter what he does he's in big trouble you know if he keeps tightening or if he loosens now either way he's gonna create a disaster and everyone's gonna point fingers at him and hate him and it's so funny. It's not Jerome Powell's fault. It's the system's fault. It's the corruption of the ledger's fault. No matter how he manages the system, it, it has to degrade. You know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not any individual person's fault. It's just the reality that it, it's a system that makes no sense. It's inefficient. And in the future, we can't have a world of, you know, 8, 9, 10 billion humans where we're trying to, you know, create projects and and do things where we're thinking that decades or centuries in advance, we can't do all that when we have somebody at, at the podium telling us how the price of money is going to change for the next three or four weeks based on his decision. It's like, okay, what if your decision's wrong? Or I would argue, even if it's the right decision that prevents catastrophe for as long as possible, what if you can't do that? <laughs> you know, it's, it's like you, you can't do it. And so anyway, as, as I think about that, it really is kind of the ancient world. I liked your phrasing of, that we're all financially illiterate, you know, in, in the same way that the printing press, as I was saying earlier, it's like everyone was illiterate and that's just the way it was. And then we all became literate. I, I think it's the same thing. I think we're used to living in a world where, you know, we have to basically barter between these 140 or so different currency unit systems 
And, you know, that's just what we expect. And we just go with the currency that's the least bad, which in this case is the U.S. dollar. And, you know, we assume that Bernanke or Powell or Yellen or all these folks are doing a good job because they prevent collapse or whatever. You know, I mean, take Bernanke. He was pretty much idolized <laughs> by the finance industry after, you know, the 2008-2009 grant financial crisis. And again, to his credit, I think he did a good job. But his job is not good. <laughs> you know, what did he do? He basically turned on liquidity, triple asset relief program, inject a bunch of money, prevent the collapse. And, you know, he did a great job, but your entire job is push the button that increases corruption, you know. So anyway, all, all that to say is that, um, yeah, if we think about the future or even increasingly long time horizon, we can't operate in a system that has to reset every couple decades or every century or so. It, it, it's just incompatible. You know, it's, it's like, how can you have a world of like, say, our modern world with candles? It's like it's completely in- incompatible. And if the proverbial light bulb fails, that's that's really, really bad for the future. And in the same way, that's that's why I care about Bitcoin, because I think it's going to succeed. And even if the probability of failure is drastically below one percent, I want to continue forcing it as close to zero percent as possible. Yeah, I think something that always catches my attention is trying to understand what this transition is going to be like if it is, you know, this light bulb moment kind of transforming humanity from the bottom up, like and you think about Bitcoin in the context of the fiat system, like something Lawrence Lepard has talked often about is the everything bubble. And what comes to mind there is bubbles don't last forever. Bubbles do pop. And I just kind of in the back of my mind, every time I see, you know, the price of Bitcoin start to rip, I'm, you know, I, I definitely don't trade or invest on this idea. But every time I start to see it rip, I'm like, you know, is is this when we see some type, type of phase transition or you know, who knows how much gas is left in the tank in the fiat system. And I just think about like, what is this singularity going to look like? Something like Max Kaiser says is like, you know, it'll be the spaghettification of the fiat system as it crosses the event horizon. You know, we're going to see a radical shift in how we value companies, something Joe Burnett has talked about. But yeah, I just kind of, I would, it's, it's perhaps a bit speculative, but I would love to hear your thoughts on how you think of this transition occurring. Is it going to be a series of incremental steps? Do you see it as coming in and perhaps a larger wave and how do you think humanity navigates that like we obviously think the fiat system will incentivize corruption but perhaps you know as that system degrades you know maybe there could be other externalities that arise so perhaps a bit wide-ranging but would love to get your thoughts on what that transition is like in your eyes yeah i've got no idea i think probably the model that i like the most hopefully everyone here is following wicked smart bitcoin i love his account i love his models he does great stuff i I like his model because he doesn't give any time preference and i think the curve is more or less accurate basically the idea of his model at least in my words the way i'd put it is that there's like three phases there's like the first phase where bitcoin goes from nothing to something pretty small and the second phase where it goes from something pretty small to something pretty large And then the final phase being where it goes to, you know, as you said, spaghettify everything and take over everything. And I think that's generally right. I think, you know, from 2009 to, say, 20, I don't know, 17 to 2020 or so was kind of that first phase where there's just the hyperbolic price action where Bitcoin, you know, it just skyrocketed so fast. And now over the last five years or so, I think we're entering this middle period where it's kind of like it floats around and it's still viewed in our collective world not us obviously but in the world as a diversification or whatever and you know i have no idea how that lasts i'm not going to try to predict it but you know i would 
guess something between five to 25 years. I have no idea. Perhaps it ends tomorrow. Perhaps it goes all the way out to 2050. But, you know, the adoption rate is quite concerning. <laughs> it makes me think it's less than I'd like to admit. But anyway, but then in the final moment, I think it'll be pretty much instant. You know, I mean, it'll. Yeah, pe- people, I think people radically underestimate what that final curve will be like. And I think it's because our brains are used to thinking in linear terms. But that's how technology never works. And so I think that's crucial to emphasize that it'll be exponential, you know. So anyway, yeah, that's pretty much how I think it'll look. I think for the next few years, maybe a decade or so, Bitcoin will just oscillate, you know, incredibly undervalued, really cheap. And and by the way, I'm talking like something between 10000 to like $5 million. <laughs> Probably oscillate somewhere between there over the next years. And then there'll just be a moment where you won't be able to exchange any political currency units for Bitcoin. That's my guess. Luke, what helps you kind of be able to try to make reasonable assumptions about the future? It's definitely not something that is easy to do or or even, you know, instinctual. You know, I think that like people in general, you know, assume that things will continue as they are with the same assumptions. You know, you're a young guy, kind of what taught you to think that way? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I suppose I always like thinking about history. And I, I think the more I learned about history, the more I realized it's all about the technology. It always comes down to the technology. You can predict who's going to win the war, which political regime is going to succeed. You can predict what, you, you know, I mean, you, you can predict anything based on, okay, which technology is superior, which one provides more value for a lower cost. I mean, you know, it's, it, and so when I take that principle, I think is objectively true and I apply it today I just look at the incentives it's all about the incentives I mean I got asked a couple days ago I I was recently on a mission trip to Guatemala and I saw Bitcoin Lake too that was quite fun but anyway you know I I was in these villages you know and they don't have very much you know they have these Guatemalan dollars I forget what they were called but you know they you know they don't have much to speak of they don't have assets to speak of and they just have, you know, a handful of, you know, this currency, this local currency that they have, you know, and, and I got asked by somebody, it's like, oh, well, how do you think they're going to adopt Bitcoin? How do you think they're going to adapt, you know? And it, it, I just came back to the incentives. It's like, no bank is going to serve these people. It's like, it would be a three hour drive for them to the bank. No bank's going to set up, you know, shop there and serve them because the cost is too high. And they're not going to, and this is exactly what we're seeing in El, El Salvador. You know, I mean, like it or not, you know, with with Bukele's, you know, bringing of Bitcoin is a what am I looking for? Legal tender. You know, you can debate whether that was the right thing or do or not. But, you know, the objective truth is that more people became, proverbially speaking, banked through Bitcoin in the following 20 months than the IMF could do in the previous 20 years. And so it's like I have no idea how quickly this will unfold, but I just look at the incentives and it seems to me. That the average person, even if they're, you know, impoverished in the developing world, it's like, you know, the, the incentives just seem clear to me. You know, they are willing to tolerate the volatility because at least their currency is not going to collapse into oblivion. And the cost of them adopting Bitcoin is lower than the cost of, you know, say, a typical bank account. And, and you know, this is, I mean, perhaps it's speculation, but I, I really think it's obvious. I mean... Think about communication, you know, think about Africa, you know, they don't have landlines. They completely leapfrogged the West and went straight to the cell phone or, 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 you know, take the power grid. 
you know, the developing world completely leapfrogged many technological innovations that the West had, and they jumped right to, you know, what we have today, generators, solar, you know, renewables, such like that, you know, basically more or less save their transitioning out of, you know, using biomass and cutting down trees and fuel into renewables because it's off the grid. You know, they're completely bypassing the coal and natural gas area. Obviously, no more simplifying, but anyway, how do I predict the future? I mean, I, I really don't think I'm that smart <laughs> to know. I really don't think I can guess, but I, I think I'm smart enough at least to look at the incentives and make the statement that the incentives are obvious. You know, I mean, take Argentina. Bitcoin's making an all-time high in Argentina because their currency is declining so fast, you know? I mean, sure, volatility is difficult on people. You know, Bitcoin's down a lot compared to a year ago, but, you know, reality is if your native political currency is dying faster than Bitcoin's volatility and it's more expensive to keep up and you need permission and you might be censored and, you know, if you cross the border and leave the country, they might take away all your political power. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I... There's a lot of the future I don't dare predict, but with this, the incentives seem obvious enough that I see no other possible avenue forward. And this is a bit of a non sequitur, but I think it's a really good thing to explore is this idea of the hangups that people have as they approach Bitcoin. I think often from perhaps in places where it's a necessary thing to have, you know, like you mentioned in Argentina, where you really, you know, you either have you know, that the corrupt fiat establishment stealing your purchasing power, you know, 99% inflation in a year, but versus a place like the US where people have the luxury of holding a stronger currency, it's perhaps not as necessary. And so in, in the case of the latter, one of the hangups that I've been interested in following, and it's been a bit humorous too, is people's understanding of Bitcoin's energy use. And I would, and I know you mentioned Ethereum's move to proof of stake, but when people, you know, one of the common hangups I hear in the U.S. is, you know, Bitcoin uses too much energy. What would be your response to that? How do you approach getting people to understand the necessity of proof of work in, in the context of society? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I, I think I, I would just approach that question. You know, again, first, I would take it with good faith. I know that a lot of the people that make that claim, especially in the WEF and everything like that, I don't think have good faith. But, you know, the average person, you know, they probably have good faith. You know, they're probably genuinely concerned about the environment, using too much energy and yada, yada, yada. But the way I would approach that would just be to take good faith and say, well, every paradigm shift into upgrading into a more modern technology inherently has to use more energy. I mean, you know, take take the light bulb, for example. You know, if we were to travel back in time when the world was using candles, it's like, if I were to bring this light bulb thing to you, it would be nearly indescribable. It's like, <laughs> how on earth do I describe it to you? It's like, okay, there's this thing with glass and inside the glass, there's like this vacuum chamber and this filament and the filament's made of tungsten and there's this electric grid you plug it into and all these wires. It's like, I have to explain tungsten, which is an incredibly difficult material, you know, for back then. It's like, there's no way we'll be able to make enough tungsten to create the, f the filaments for all the light bulbs in the world. And there's no way we'll be able to create a vacuum chamber. And perhaps some people would have to even have that explained to them. And then you have to explain electricity. You have to explain coal. You have to explain perhaps nuclear power. You have to explain, you know, in order to accurately explain the light bulb to somebody that's living in a world of candles, you pretty much have to explain the entire future world. And, th and that's why I focus so much on technology. Because when you think of the future, say, 100 years from now, and 
you view artificial intelligence and self-driving cars and, you know, fission and fusion energy in the future and, and, you know, using the power of the sun, you know, when you view all these future technologies that today are in the infancy, you realize for us to get there, we have to upgrade the monetary system. And in the same way with light bulbs, if we're going to get to that future where we have, you know, electricity and we have more intense mining or, you know, we have all these things in the future, well, we have to upgrade to some form of mechanical candle, so to speak, which today obviously we call the light bulb. And, you know, probably the most common criticism, if I were to go back in time and explain it, would be that, oh, you're just full of a bunch of jargon and the light bulb uses too much energy anyways. I can just burn this candle. I don't have to plug in. It's so much simpler. And, you know, to a certain extent, they're right. The light bulb uses more energy than a candle. But the problem with a candle is that you have to kill whales and harvest their oil to to light your lamp or to, or to light your candle. I mean, a lamp, obviously, more in this instance. But, you know, we I, I feel that humans often look at the future via overlaying the past onto it. And, and so the problem is if we assume that the ener- we use more energy in the future, that inherently means that it's worse for the planet. But, you know, I mean, it takes less energy to cause whales to go extinct for our desire to get a little tiny flickering light in our home with these lamps. But, you know, even though the light bulb uses more energy than a candle, you have exponentially more people that have light for exponentially longer periods of time that's like a thousand to ten thousand times cheaper per lumen and you know it, it's it uses much more energy and and yet the energy sources we can use for our light bulbs are becoming more and more green you know um, I mean like it or not coal and burning fossil fuels is much better on the planet than forcing whales to go extinct in a matter of decades if we had continued and likewise we're upgrading from coal to renewables and everything like that slowly and so Anyway, I guess my larger point with Bitcoin using too much energy would be that, yes, it uses more energy per transaction. But the secondary and knockoff effects of that are so much greater than I think we're calculating. You know, one of my recent threads, I calculated how many lives Bitcoin could potentially save. And, you know, it's like, okay, what if we eradicate a fiat system? It's like, okay, that's less war. That's less consumerism. That's less mining for gold. That's less mining for silver for their monetary premiums you know it, we, we change so much about the political system and political infrastructure it's like yeah bitcoin will use more energy you know per transaction say or however you want to define it uh, and that's not even including lightning but you know one way or another even if we use more energy in the future it should theoretically be better for everyone on earth and the earth itself and i think to disagree with that it respectfully is to like completely ignore history because if you look at the total cumulative energy production and consumption of the human race, you know, it's been exponential for thousands of years. And this is one of the reasons why overpopulation is always a big fear. It's because if we overlay current technology on future population trends, you know, then we're going to have mass famine or whatever because we can't keep up. This is why it's been a prevailing fear for centuries and it's never come to pass. It's because, yes, the population grows, but the technology also keeps up with it. And so I, I think the only logical conclusion is to assume that trend continues. Well said. Yeah, so we, we brought Dallas up on stage. Dallas, if you have a question for Luke, feel free to let it rip. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. To be honest, I don't have a question at this exact second. I don't want to hold you guys up. I may, may drop down. My apologies. I'm getting ready to go to Japan. Luke, you're a legend. Keep keep dropping knowledge on everybody. I appreciate Luke's points. He's, he's crushing it. But thank you, guys. 
<laughs> okay, thank, thanks, Dallas. D- Dallas and I have been trying to organize a, a call between us for well over a week now. So <laughs> good, good to meet you here. So hopefully we can talk soon. Have a safe trip to Japan. I think that might be a, a decent segue into. I, I would just love to get your thoughts on like why you came to Bitcoin Twitter. I know you said you've done education and kind of meat space, trying to give people lessons on what Bitcoin is, but it seems like you felt an urge to come here and share your thoughts. So yeah, you know, what has that been like for you coming here and kind of engaging with this community? Any any takeaways from that? Yeah, I don't know about any takeaways, but yeah, pretty much I was just in real life. I did a few presentations and whatnot. And, you know, again, thinking about the circles, there's a large number of people that don't care. Within the large number of people don't care, there's a smaller circle and that circle cares about number go up. And so they go away as soon as price goes down. <laughs> and then within that circle, you know, if you have more layers of people that care and, care, and obviously if you do it in real life, you know, talking to a couple hundred people, you know, obviously you're going to get nowhere. I did a poll recently asking people how many people they think they've orange pilled. And I, I and I asked that because I was thinking about it for myself and, you know, I probably orange pilled maybe 10 to 12, maybe 15 people over the course of the 18 months or so before I posted my first thread on Twitter, you know, may- maybe that, but I mean, you know, orange pill, it's like a loose term. It's like, they don't really understand Bitcoin only. You know, I mean, they only understand parts of it. That's not orange. But then pill. I post on Twitter and it's like, it gets all these views. And then it's like, wow, you know, I, with all the DMS and the comments and the praise and people like, Oh, thank you. You helped me so much or whatever. You know, it's like, well, shoot <laughs> for one tenth the time, you know, for one tenth the time on my end, in one-tenth the time of it being online, you know, I've orange-pilled probably 10 times more people, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's not to say there's something special about me. That's just to say that that's, that's the beauty of technology, that with this free bird app, you know, out there, I, I can do 10 times the impact for one-tenth the cost and, you know, one-tenth the time. You know, it's, it's amazing. So anyway, I, I'm just kind of laboring on there of, of fascination, but yeah, I don't really have any particular insights besides just like i shouldn't be surprised because it's exactly my whole thesis of that technology forces everything to be more exponential for a lower marginal cost devrel do you have a question for luke all right and he's gone yeah yeah i think he's gone (laughs) (laughs) all right luke i got i got one last question for you and then i think we could probably wrap it up soon but you know part of one of your threads you kind of talk about this assumption of like growth and this assumption of technology continuing to enable humans to to do more with less or extract more and continue moving society forward can you talk a little bit more specifically around how you see bitcoin being a part of that a continued human story. yeah i mean i could give examples i mean i i think even thinking outside of bitcoin i think it's obvious one of them i think a self-driving cars you know i yeah this is an entirely separate thing but i think the underlying point remains you know i i think a lot of people think self-driving cars are impossible or far driving out or whatever or far out in, in the time or whatever and perhaps they are i'm not educated enough to make a guess <laughs> but you know, I, I think it just goes to emphasize the limitation of human brains that we think it's impossible. It's like the self-driving car doesn't have to drive better than a human. It simply has to drive 10 times the number of miles for 10 times less sleep for one-tenth the cost with one-tenth the accidents. You know, it just has to be better, economically speaking. Even if it has the same number of accidents and has the same cost, or no, excuse me, if it has the same number of accidents and it's only on the road for the same number of hours, if it's just marginally cheaper, 
you know, then then it's inevitable that it's going to be adopted. And so, you know, we could set it with with self-driving cars. We could set it with energy and renewables and everything of that sort. We, we could say one of the things I think is interesting, you know, because I talk to a lot of gold bugs is thinking about mining. It's like, OK, we've already sent probes to space and the moon and to asteroids and all that. And, you know, even if Bitcoin didn't exist, let's think logically here. Asteroid mining is basically impossible <laughs> by today's standards. But what happens in 80 years? What happens in 100 years? What happens in 50 years? I mean, you know, make a guess. You know, we're probably not talking about a millennia. We're probably talking about decades or maybe a century out until asteroid mining becomes a legitimate possibility. And what happens, you know, when you have, say, a relatively rare metal like gold, at least here on Earth, you know, what happens when we bring in, you know, five years or 10 years worth of gold mining supply with one asteroid mission and you know what if we can do that for cheaper safer and more effective instead of destroying forests on earth we simply send out a bunch of robots on a three-year mission or whatever and you know anyway i know this is like really far out thinking but it's like to me it seems inevitable it as a you know the farther out in time you go the more likely this scenario becomes and so then the question is even without bitcoin what happens to gold you know what happens to gold when you know, 100 years from now, we're doubling the global supply of gold every every year or every couple of years. And then what happens 50 years after that when we're increasing the supply of gold on Earth by a factor of three or five? Every I mean, you know, it's like even if Bitcoin didn't exist, it seems to me that the era of gold being the world's basically base layer of money for the last thousands of years is you know pretty much over. And same thing with artificial intelligence. You know, we're ending an era where humans are the only quote-unquote intelligent things. It's like, you know, I, I don't think people are really ready to think about what if in 50 years, you know, half of the companies on Earth are entirely software, remote companies online. And it's like, okay, what if we can make an AI that can make said company, you know, only, let's just say, as good, you know, not better, but just as good for like one-tenth the cost and 10 times faster. It's like, you know, I'm, anyway, I'm kind of blabbering on here, but to I, I guess some practical examples, I just think of various forms of technology. And the more I think about it, it's just it seems to me all these things are inevitable. I don't know which is first. I don't know how long I I'm nowhere near educated enough to make any guess on those. But I mean, just follow the incentives. Like if the world's going to continue, everything has to get cheaper. Everything has to get better because that's the nature of a free market. You pay somebody to provide more value for you for a lower cost and so no matter what companies of the future and what industries come they have to provide more value for less otherwise you know who's gonna who's gonna pay for them so anyway but what does bitcoin do to reinforce that or or improve that you know because pretty much thus far i've been saying it's all inevitable even if bitcoin didn't exist but since bitcoin does exist i i, I think it only makes all of those things faster and i think the reason that that's true is because it works in tandem with the internet it works in tandem with the electric grid it works in tandem with, with computers and so uh, this is this is a point preston made on the podcast that i thought was excellent about how you know for people in the developing world you know the ability for them to mine bitcoin in their local area you know let's see what what's the satoshi's journal for example they're they're doing work in nigeria i believe and other companies are doing work in africa of helping local groups upgrade you know to bitcoin and increase bitcoin mining and so the faster they adopt bitcoin the faster 
their electric grids can become profitable, you know, for Bitcoin mining and profitability and all, you know, last, last buyer resort, you know, all, all those things that we all understand. But, you know, it's, it's like a self-reinforcing feedback loop that the faster people adopt the internet, the faster they have the need for a global money that is native to the internet. And the faster they adopt the mining of that currency, the faster they adopt the electric. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of like any technology of the past. You know, if you look at it from a modern perspective, every innovation only self-reinforces every other innovation of, of that era, you know? And I think looking forward, it, it's true in the same way, in the same way that asteroid mining decreases the argument for gold. I think the adoption of Bitcoin, you know, only makes it, you know, it's, it's like a feedback loop that comes back and forth. And I think that's true for every potential technology of the future. In the future, you know, if we have an artificial intelligence future, I think Bitcoin only makes artificial intelligence happen sooner and sooner, makes it more and more possible sooner and i think likewise artificial intelligence only becomes more economic the faster that bitcoin is adopted so anyway those are some tangible examples i hopefully answered your question there i think you did a great job of, of answering it and you know i guess the way that i would answer it is i would say bitcoin is money is is money that actually works and it actually helps us better allocate capital so i really do think that our ability to be aligned around quote-unquote capital T truth and and make economic calculations based on that rather than kind of like the craziness that's brought to us by fiat like that by itself is going to help humanity go exponential yeah excellent point yeah and uh, Luke I just have one more question for you but before we do that I just wanted to say thanks again for coming on the show it's been a blast and for people who are looking for more conversations like this, highly recommend coming to Bitcoin 2023 this year, uh, May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Luke, CK, Chris, and myself will all be there having a great time. Lots of conversations on the, the wide reaching implications of this technology. So come through, network, get to know everyone from Bitcoin Twitter and come, come say what up and you can save 10% with code COSMIC. I'll see y'all there. Looking forward to it. But Otherwise, Luke, I would just be curious, you know, where can people stay up to date on your work? And then is there anything else that, you know, is on the horizon for you? Anything you're working on? Any outstanding questions you have that you want to explore in the Bitcoin space? I think we're all anxiously awaiting your next master thread. <laughs> well, appreciate it. Yeah, for now, I guess just Twitter is where I am. You know, I, I had a busy life before Twitter blew up and then Twitter blew up. And now it's like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> everyone wants me on Telegram and this, and that, and the other. And so anyway, between Twitter and the podcast, people have fully invited me to, including yourselves. You know, I'm pretty full right now, but I, I do intend on getting a Noster, Noster, I think it's Noster account and Telegram, you know, all, all the other things I, I intend on getting. And hopefully pretty soon here, I'll post them all on my Twitter when I do. Long term, I, I really would like to make a film about Bitcoin. It's something that I've had in the back of my mind for a while. I, I have a film background, I've not made anything for a few years, but, but I, I've really wanted to make an ex educational film about Bitcoin from the perspective of technology. I've watched some other films and, and I think not. I, I think they tend to confuse people. I, I'd rather just make a film kind of like my first thread where the first half or so is really about technology and the incentive structures of technology and everything of that sort. And then kind of, again, morphing into this vision of if we take these past trends, projecting the future is what the future could look like. And the bridge necessary to get us from here to there is an immutable closed monetary system. And that system is Bitcoin for X, Y, and Z reasons. So anyway, that, that's really far out to, to make that film. Right now, I'm just thrilled to be on podcasts. I'll post those on my Twitter and join those other platforms. I'll post those on my Twitter. 
and to join the Bitcoin conference in Miami. So, yep, that's that's where you can find me. That's what I'm working on. Awesome. Luke, I gotta I have to really encourage you to check out Anaster. It's it's a lot of fun on there and a lot of Bitcoiners are very active. It's very cool to see what Bitcoiners have built. So definitely get on there. Can't encourage it enough. But yeah, thank you again for, for coming on to the show. Really appreciate your insights and hopefully we can uh, we can get some more of your content over here on Bitcoin magazine. So T B D on that, but again. Cheers to you and cheers to everyone for listening. Thanks so much. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up magazine time y'all bitcoin is for everyone lefties righties and the rejectors of the false dichotomy alike and that is why the newest bitcoin magazine print edition is called the orange party issue it features articles by president naive bukele jeff dice natalie smolinski eric Kaysen, max kaiser and jimmy song get your copy from the local barnes and noble bookstore or from the bitcoin magazine store at bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code bm live to get 10 percent off your annual subscription today Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.